It's Lent, and the country's awash, if that's the correct word, with the resolve of heavy drinkers to get off the bottle. They could get help from a remarkable American publishing company, which over the past month has been setting up its European distribution headquarters in Toker and the outskirts of Cork City. The company is called Hazelden Educational Materials. It produces an impressive range of books, videos and tapes on all kinds of addictions. One of its books on alcoholism has sold 5 million copies. Hazelden's more popular titles deal with addiction to drink, drugs and food, but other topics covered include addiction to addicts and even addiction by unfaithful husbands to mistresses. Hazelden Educational Materials is a non-profit organisation and hopes to get charitable status in Ireland. It has its origins in a farm called Hazelden in rural Minnesota, which was converted 40 years ago into an alcohol treatment centre. The director of an Irish alcohol treatment programme at St. Patrick's Hospital Dublin has visited Hazelden. He's consultant psychiatrist Dr. Matt Murphy. I suppose the the one of the one of the um, most interesting parts of Hazelden is that it was a, a pioneering influence on the treatment of alcoholism. That it started off in the late 1940s when nobody else was doing anything about alcoholism, and that the only treatment and in inverted commas available uh, for alcoholism was detoxification which wasn't, of course, really a treatment at all. It um, precipitated by AA. It, it, it uh, developed a whole philosophy towards the treatment of alcoholism, which was very unique at the time, which uh, involved uh, the lesser use of medical people uh, in the treatment of alcoholism and the greater and the much greater use of uh, people who were already addicted and recovered from alcohol abuse um, the, these people were felt to be uh, particularly useful in the treatment because of their own experience and their experiential approach paid dividends very often it was found gradually over the over the late 40s and through the 50s and one of those for whom the approach paid dividends in the 50s was pat butler now 88 years old, Pat's the grandson of two immigrants from Wicklow and the son of a bricklayer who built a thriving construction business in Minnesota's mining range. Hazelden was Butler's bottle, his cure, quite different from the booze bottle so beloved by his hard-drinking father, his brothers and himself. In our family there were seven of us, father and mother and five children. Mother was the only non-alcoholic in the family. That's an amazing record, isn't it? Thank God we all didn't get drunk at once. <laughs> Somebody kept the business going. And uh, but Mother must have had an awful time with us. Today, Pat Butler's in his 40th year as a recovering alcoholic, a millionaire and the chairman of Hazelden. But back in the 40s, he remembers, he was drinking his family contracting business into ruin. So, let's see, in 48, I, I was running the company from... from uh, about 45 on and then we sold out to a group of uh, a syndicate of steel companies that bought us out and uh, of course that gave me lots of time to complete my education of drinking and in 19 in 1949 Hazelden was founded I was a sort of a strange person around in AA at that time by the name of Ripley 
and he had an idea. He was, the the the, uh, the alcoholic priest has always been a problem in Ireland, of course, and all, all over the world, as far as I know. And and they never knew what to do with him, except put him in a monastery and lock him up. Uh, and Ripley had an idea that he could uh, have a place like Hazelden where they could take the Catholic priest and sober him up. And he sold Archbishop Murray on that idea. There was also a, a banker here in town by the name of Dick Lilly, who uh, was a hard-drinking, hard-card-playing man. And one night he was playing poker at the Minnesota club and doing a lot of drinking. And on his way home, he went over the high bridge <laughs> and uh, landed on some railroad tracks about 90 feet below and just was on a big Cadillac, fortunately, and he hit engine down and he lived through it. But that put the fear of God into him and he got pretty philanthropic. So when they approached Lily to uh, set up Hazelden, uh, he, 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 he liked the idea, and he put up uh, $50,000 to buy the property. It was a, a farm, and a, and a working farm, but it was owned by a, uh, a well-to-do family, and they used it as sort of, from the cities, used it as sort of a, a summer place. So, but they, it was available. I think the, uh, I think the parents were divorced or something, so it became available. And uh, Lily put up the money to buy it, and they started in. But somehow or other, the idea that this place would be so solely for priests fell by the wayside. And uh, they realized they must have a pretty good student body to make it to make it pay. As I say, it opened in May of '49. My young brother was the first layperson there as an alcoholic, and I came along. And I think I may have been there for two or three days in '49. But in January of '50, I was there, 1950. And at that time, when there was no regulation about length of stay or anything like that, if you just had the money, you paid, and and you stayed as long as the director could talk you into staying. I think I stayed about a week there in January, and then I went to Florida, and I think maybe I was hoping I'd be tempted beyond my strength, which I was, <laughs> and got drunk again in Florida, but came back and, and kept on drinking that all that time until July of 1950. And this time I stayed a couple of weeks, and it took, so I've been, my dry date is July of 1950, and see, this was that, 38 years. So. Then Lily, who had an idea that he'd get Hazelin started, uh, then AA would take it up, which everybody knows now AA can't run anything. They have trouble running a clubhouse. <laughs> so I lockered next to him at the Somerset Golf Club, and uh, he said, why don't you, everybody in town knew about the butler interest in alcoholism. He said, why don't you take it on? So I talked it over with my father, and couple of brothers and we decided to take it on. Well the manager we had was a good therapist but he was a lousy administrator and pretty soon one that fell to me so I've been sort of the guiding light of it ever since.
His centre now employs 900 people who care for 200 patients at any one time. They stay on average for a month. The first thing a patient must do on reaching Hazeldon is to get off drink or drugs. Then a team of medics, counsellors, psychologists and clergy designs his or her individual treatment plan, setting out goals in the social, emotional, intellectual, spiritual and physical well-being of the patient. Treatment involves daily lectures, group therapy and individual counselling, but no mood-altering drugs. In the early days, Pat Butler recalls, the centre was small and unstructured. And the, and the therapy was, was just, uh, just happened, that's all. Just when it happened, I remember we uh, had no formal time, like three lectures a day, there was nothing like that. You just lectures whenever Lynn Carroll, the manager, felt like saying having a meeting or some AAs dropped in. But as its reputation grew, why the, the population grew, and then the therapy grew along with it. And finally, you had staff meetings and doctors and the whole ball of works that you have now. Founded with the approval of a Catholic archbishop, uh, yeah. taken over by a recovering alcoholic yeah. yourself. Yeah. Um, is it a religious institution? Was it ever a religious institution? No, no, no we never. We, we never. We've had all the, the blessings of the clergy, and, uh, and uh, to, to, to pick up the spiritual side of AA, we've always included clergy. And it wasn't long before, that there, of course, there were very few clergy trained for that purpose. So early on, I would say in 65 or so, we began training people, uh, not only for lay people, for uh, alcoholic counselors, but we were training uh, uh, clergy to uh, not only to go back to their own parishes and be knowledgeable but also to, to join in the join in the field as counselors yeah as, as counselors yes to uh, to contribute to the spiritual side of the of the AA program some years ago a former director and president of Hazelden a psychologist called Dan Anderson defined this spiritual side during a lecture to clients the essentials are spiritual and the basic question that all of us must face up to, am I God or not God? Can I give up reliance on my own omnipotence, my own power seeking, my own attempts to get control over everything? If I can acknowledge dependence upon a higher power, then perhaps I can admit that I can do some things but not everything. Then perhaps the most profound change of all can take place. I can join the human race. I can accept my humanity and reciprocally, I can accept my dependence upon a higher power. I can become humble, if you will. All the alcoholic really wants is to feel well and to ensure this by controlling everything and everybody. And this would bring about emotional security, at least it should. It should bring about happiness. But in actual fact, what happens to the practicing alcoholic? What uh, happiness, what security? does the alcoholic get? Again, AA quotations. Terrible feelings of inadequacy, swings of elation and depression. At a deeper level, the alcoholic knows that the loss of control is increasing, that everything is collapsing. The person fears insanity, has terrible feelings of self-pity and resentment, feels lost, frightened, purposeless, anxious, a terrible sense of isolation, a terrible sense of apartness from both God and man, 
but finally the person hits bottom, is really licked, experiences hopelessness, helplessness, loneliness, despair, but finally also in hitting bottom, that person can experience ego deflation at great depth, a terrible crisis. But along with this crisis comes the beautiful possibility of growth to maturity, the possibility of a spiritual awakening. Now somehow AA understands this terrible crisis better than, than anyone else I know, and also how to grow out of it. This recording of Dan Anderson's talk is still used by Hazelden trained counsellors, including some working in Ireland. But Dr. Matt Murphy of St. Patrick's Hospital disagrees with Anderson's version of the technique. Uh, one of the initial uh, philosophies of AA was that a person had to hit a rock bottom before they could recover, um, and that therefore you had to just simply allow the alcoholic to descend to whatever lowest level he possibly could reach before uh, an inner light shone on him in some way, and then he could recover. Now that's not felt to be the case anymore. Um, people can be assisted long before this um, nadir occurs. Later in Anderson's recording, he explains to his Hazelden patients that the self-help group steers them towards maturity. Well, whatever this maturity is, it's reached after only great pain and suffering, only after multiple assaults on this prideful self, and finally the realization comes that to be human is to have absolute control over nothing. To be human is to have absolute dependence upon nothing absolute dependence upon nothing except absolute dependence upon some higher power. Now the sober alcoholic then now, in growing to maturity, sort of gradually gives up being general manager of the universe and realizes that he or she is just a limited human being. This is known as the Minnesota model. Um, it is based largely on, on AA philosophy which was that uh, there was a particularly a spiritual dimension to the problem of, of alcohol addiction. Uh, the, um, the model, the, the AA philosophy meant that you had to initially acknowledge that you had no power over your alcohol intake. Well, you didn't have a, uh, an ability to choose how much alcohol you took or uh, how much time you spent drinking or anything like that. And then you had to acknowledge that this had happened in your life and you had to make a, a, a definite open acknowledgement of this to, um, to your peers, to your family, uh, after you'd made it in initially in, in the treatment centre. Um, there are a lot of things that alcoholism affects. It affects one's uh, physical state, it affects one's emotional state, and it affects one's spiritual state. Uh, th these are three three headings that I th think one could usefully use. And um, I, suppose, I suppose the spiritual dimension was one of particular importance because it was given a particular importance in, in the AA philosophy. It was, a, it was a means by which people could um, live their lives without using alcohol to recover spiritually as well as recovering physically, medically, and indeed emotionally. So uh, are we talking about some kind of transcending of, of the self, transcending of the psychological and physical state that the patient is in through some kind of inner resource? I think we are. I think we're perhaps talking about the psychological phenomenon known as conversion. 
which is a bit like uh, what happened to St. Paul on the road to Damascus. Thereafter, after such an experience, he converted and channeled his energies into uh, a different approach, a different way of looking at things, um, a, a complete reversal or turning of the tables of his previous self. And this is a bit like what happens uh, when people with the, um, the problem of alcohol addiction who have previously channeled their energies and channeled their all their internal resources and, and all, their, all their mental faculties into sustaining and making successful an addiction, now channel their resources into recovery by, pro by virtue of this process of, of conversion. Oh, sorry. Obviously, they have to be often aided towards that uh, process of conversion. And uh, they can be aided by all sorts of people. They can be aided by counselors skilled in the in the in the in the ways of, of of treating addiction. And they can be aided also, particularly by their by, by a peer group of people who have already recovered from from an addiction. Well, how does that work itself out in practical terms here in St. Patrick's? Here in St. Patrick's, we have groups each week, which are run by volunteers uh, uh, who have found their recovery here in St. Patrick's, and. Uh, who come back each week to help um, people who are already who are actually in treatment at the time and uh, help to orient them towards uh, sober lives and help them to negotiate the various pitfalls that can occur in in on the path to recovery. I suppose the most obvious question is: Are there risks involved in this for the recovered alcoholic to go back into contact with uh, with alcoholics who haven't recovered? A broad no is the answer to that, I think. Uh, in fact, most people who are doing this volunteer work, work would say it, it's, a, it's a tremendous aid, con uh, a continuing aid to their, to their continuing recovery. Uh, they find it useful and helpful to be reminded of the kind of thinking that can, can occur in somebody who is actively, uh, um, uh, sorry, who is who's, um, uh, trying to recover and um, they find a certain wry humor sometimes in, in, in seeing people, seeing people's defense mechanisms still in operation, whereas their own may be um, laid aside because of their recovery. This is the story now about the dry drunk. This person is not drinking but isn't thinking sober, is looking for an excuse to drink, trying to blame other people. Gets up angry in the morning, his wife can see he's resentful. She asks him, dear, what would you like for breakfast? He says, I want two eggs. She says, how do you want them? He says, I want one fried and one scrambled. And she did just a beautiful job, just right. Served them on separate plates, put them down in front of him. He swept both plates off on the floor where they crashed and broke. She says, what's wrong? He said, you fried the one I wanted scrambled and scrambled the one I wanted fried. Dan Anderson capturing some of that humour in a lecture recorded at Hazelden, which is now used for therapeutic purposes. Outsiders are forbidden to record interviews at residence as it's Hazelden's policy to guarantee past and present clients' confidentiality. This helps addicts and alcoholics in their never-ending battle to stay clean. However, I managed to meet a Hazelden past pupil called John. He's 56, a businessman living in Minneapolis, where he's been attending Alcoholics Anonymous every week for 18 years, ever since his employer and a doctor persuaded him to get treated. John remembers arriving at the centre in 1971. And so I, I decided and I went up there and I checked in and I was assigned to, um, as you know, having been up there, they have different halls, different units. And I was assigned to uh, Lily Hall. 
And I was assigned to a counselor who has now been passed away uh, been, uh, by the name of uh, Chuck Crew. And um, I began my treatment program, which was, um, I had a, there was another person and I in the room, and I was, uh, here I was 38 years old, and my roommate was 18, you know, which is a real shocker to me. Here was an 18-year-old young man back in 1971 who was my roommate, uh, the two of us in this room. And um, the routine, and I don't know if, uh, how much it's changed over the years, but our routine was... Um, you get up in the morning, you know, you obviously have to make your bed, you have to clean up the room. Uh, very nice setting. That was part of it that made it easier for me because the setting is very nice and there's not the, the marble, or not marble, but tile floors and all kinds of those things. It has a setting more of a motel, hotel arrangement. And, um, and we would go to breakfast uh, early morning and right after breakfast we have to come back and, and we all had tasks. Everyone was given a job, uh, what, no matter how insignificant it was they all had their we all had our jobs to do. I remember my job was um, I had to go down to the uh, lunchroom uh, dining room uh, area 30 minutes or so prior to the each meal and my job was to put out all the glasses and the, the juice glasses and the milk glasses and that at all the tables you know big job really tough the routine itself then would start out with breakfast in the morning come back then um, and you have to go to meals you cannot skip a meal. Alcoholics are great for not wanting to eat, okay? And so they, they destroy their themselves uh, with, many of them arrive with terrible nutri poor nutritional habits or no nutritional habits whatsoever. So there are certain things that you absolutely have to do. You have to go to meals. And they don't care if you go and just sit there, you have to go down to the dining room. We were required to sit together with the people in our unit. There were like 22 people in our unit, and at the time there were like five men's units and maybe a couple women's units. So you were required to sit with your unit, okay, at tables with your unit. No fraternization. I don't mean fraternization with females. I mean no fraternization with people from other units. They wanted you and the others in your unit to get to know one another. Uh, not to try and be a social butterfly and get to know everybody that was there, but to get to know one another so that one another could be honest enough with each other to determine if a person was really getting with the program, so to speak, or just trying to con their way through. Because there would be group sessions where all of the people would be together in one group setting, or they could break them up into two smaller groups of 11 people each. And it might be a situation, if all 22 were together, it might be for the purpose that someone who had maybe been there a week or 10 days was now required to tell his story to the group because the group was later on going to evaluate whether or not they felt the person was really telling it as it really was, or if they were were uh, purposely um, being um, real easy on themselves, or whatever the case is. Because later on, after you'd been there maybe two or two and a half weeks or three weeks, at least in the unit that I was in, they had what they called the hot seat. And what that meant was is that you literally, as a, as a patient, you would take your chair 
and put it in the center of this group of 22 or 3 men, and they then would tell you what they thought about you since the time they had gotten to know you. Maybe they had known you a week. Some of them have maybe known you the full time you were there or whatever. And it could be real, real difficult because there was no holes barred. I mean, um, uh, people could be told that they felt they were absolute liars. Eighteen years on, John still remembers his clash with a Canadian mayor in his group. He and I never hit it off very well because I really felt that he was a... <laughs> Unfair to say, it's a characterization of all politicians, but he's real political. Well, he just wanted to be loved by everybody, and he was just kind of a, a real, uh, you know, I always got the feeling like he was trying to garner votes there, I didn't, you know, and so he and I, and I was very kind of confrontational as it related to him. Um, in fact, I was real confrontational in those days, and I have mellowed over the years, but so I remember he came in when I was having my hot seat, and, I, and he had like two and a half pages of stuff <laughs> written down in a yellow, looked like it was legal-sized manila paper in which he began to read from, and I mean, he just sliced me up one side and down the other, and I always remember, because one of my friends, who we are is still friends to this day, and I hear from him uh, throughout the year, maybe eight or ten times, um, when he calls me now, he will, instead of asking for me on the phone, even though he knows it's me on the phone, he'll say, Hello, ruthless, because that's what this man said about me. He said that he felt I was one of the most ruthless men that he had ever met. You know, and I sat there and I thought, oh, wow. But um, he really came loaded for bear when it was my, my uh, opportunity for the hot seat. And uh, <clears throat> I can't remember anything else that he said about that in there other than he did use that term. <clears throat> I think he's the only one that's ever called me that ever in my life other than my friend who who jokingly now refers that to me, so whenever I pick up the phone and this voice says, Hello, Ruthless, I know instantly who it is. It's my good friend Myron, who was there at Hazleton with me and is a resident and lives in southern Minnesota. So it's become kind of a joke between he and I, but I'll tell you when it was time for my hot seat, when that man got done reading those two and a half pages of Sandro grabbed that. Um, when she got done reading, or he got done reading those two and a half pages, I mean, uh, he really cut me up, and uh, maybe I had it coming, maybe I didn't, I don't know, but uh, it was his chance uh, to unload on me, and, and he, made good, he made good use of it. But in recent years, Hazelden has shunned these confrontational tactics. Dr. Matt Murphy. I think in, in general terms, in the 1970s, um, there was a move towards a very confront a heavily confrontational approach towards the treatment of alcoholics and drug abusers generally. And uh, it, it was generally acknowledged to me in my trip there last November that uh, this approach had died out very considerably, almost almost completely. There used to be a, a thing called the hot seat where somebody got a, a um, put into, this, into a chair in the center of a room and everyone else sat around and, well, uh, to some extent took them apart. Now, um, if there's one thing that alcoholics are used to in their active alcoholic life, it's confrontation and how to deal with it. They're very practiced at it indeed. And it was found with experience that this approach did ju just simply did not work. Uh, it has been heavily cut back. I think people are direct and honest with alcoholics and will 
give them absolutely uh, true feedback and it's possible and uh, necessary to do this but it's also possible to do it with um, having much greater regard than was the case then perhaps for the dignity of the human being concerned. And the key to John recovering his dignity was the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you really sit and look at those 12 steps of the program and really think about them and think what they say, it is a marvelous program for anybody. You don't have to be alcoholic, okay, to look at those steps and say, hey, that's a great way to live. That's a great way to live that when you're wrong, promptly admit it, as one of the steps says. When you are wrong, promptly admit it. I never promptly admitted anything I was wrong to before. I may find all ways to justify why I was right. And I could use all kinds of intellectual gifts or, or rational gifts to convince you that I was absolutely correct. Okay? I don't do that anymore. When I'm wrong now, I try and promptly admit it. I'm not perfect. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to sit here and say that I am prepared for canonization next week. No, not at all. But what I am saying is, is that when you look at those steps, um, and, uh, you know, it, it talks about things like uh, made a list of all people we had harmed and became willing to uh, make amends. I mean, hey, you know, that's, that's not a bad thing for anybody to do. You know, and when given the opportunity to to make those amends, when to do so, only when not to do so would be to harm someone else. You know, maybe you've done something that you're not real proud of, okay, but to now go back and say I'm sorry may bring more pain. You know, it may be a, a real self-cleansing feeling for you, but it may be a real painful uh, maybe it might be a situation where uh, you have infidelity involved in a marriage. Well, it's not my recommendation to anyone, whether it be man or woman, whoever is the, is the perpetrator of that, I would not recommend that you run immediately up to your spouse and say, I'm really sorry for my behavior three months ago. You know, that might be a case where I, I might think that if you want to preserve this relationship, Maybe that would be one where it's between you and God and another person, okay, as it says in this program, admitted to God and to yourself and to another person, the exact nature of your wrong. Similar to Catholic Catholicism, but I think done so with far greater emphasis than, I mean, I was raised Catholic, okay, and I have a lot of respect for the, for the church of my birth, but I also know that I hit the confessional a lot of times on Saturday night and duplicated my behavior uh, an hour and a half later. You know, Here the idea is, is that you admit to these shortcomings with the idea that you're not going to duplicate them. I am not nearly as religious as I was years ago, but I can assure you I'm more spiritual. I have a I think that I have a much better understanding of, of God and, and the role that he plays in my life, and I happen to say he or whatever, okay? But I'm not nearly as religious in action as I was as a youth growing up or my early adult life or my middle adult life. And people would say, well, that's an easy way for saying he's not real church-going. 
That's true, I'm not. But I would say that at least my own spiritual program, as I understand it, I think is in better shape today than it, than it has been in many, 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 many years. Not surprisingly, Catholic clergy have been prominent in adapting Hazelden's techniques to Ireland. One of them, Sister Eileen Fahey. I worked in, in psychiatric nursing and I really liked psychiatric nursing, but I was very much aware of the number of alcoholics that were coming and going and also espoused the families in great distress. And I felt surely there must be a more, a more professional approach, a more full, full approach to, to treating the alcoholic. So I, um, my father Rayfield Short was just founding Rutland at the time and uh, he was being interviewed by Gay Byrne and I was very impressed with what he was about to set up so I got leave of absence from the health board and I went and trained there for a year but at the end of the year I saw that that was so extensive the program there between the aftercare and all that went on in the day-to-day -day running of the place that, that I felt it couldn't be done within the psychiatric service particularly as it was totally drug-free. I felt it had to be a place apart. So she went to Hazelden for a month and brought back its head of training, Marlon Brissett, to care County Tipperary, not far from the psychiatric hospital Sister Eileen had once worked in. There, together in a Georgian house, they set up Ashiree. Ashiree was started on the 12th of September 1983 and it's a residential treatment centre for alcoholics. We also uh, admit gamblers and drug addicts. It's a fairly intense uh, program. Uh, it, there's group therapy involvement, a lot of individual counselling and uh, lectures. Mainly our counsellors are qualified. They were all trained under Marlon Brissette, who would have the Hazelton approach. She would use the Hazelton model of treatment. We would differ, I suppose, from the the exact Hazelton model in that um, theirs would be a multidisciplinary approach of uh, detoxification, medical and uh, psychological assessment, and uh, psychiatrist psychiatric involvement. We wouldn't have that. Ours would mainly be counselling, group counselling, and. Um, a lot of individual individual work. We can afford that because we're a small unit and uh, most of our staff are recovering people themselves. They would have been through a similar type treatment program. Ashiree's non-medical approach is generally applauded by Dr Matt Murphy, but he has a word of caution. It's about Ireland's high level of dual diagnosis. That's when alcoholics are also suffering from psychiatric illnesses. In the States, they talked about something like a 5 to 10% incidence of what they called dual diagnosis, which is somebody who was addicted to a substance, plus also had a, a, had a psychiatric illness. Now, I think there are quite compelling reasons to suggest that in the Irish setting, that incidence of dual diagnosis is greater, um, perhaps something like 12 to 15%. That's a significant number. It's sort of one in every six or seven uh, persons with an alcohol problem. And um, while it's still the case, obviously, that most people with alcohol problems are primary alcoholics, then there, there, there is this definite subsection of people who have uh, another psychiatric illness also. One would be um, very wary of, of the f this fact because uh, one would feel that, that, um, that 
such associated conditions should always be diagnosed, should always be treated, and could, um, can, can only improve the chances of somebody uh, with a dual diagnosis to rec- towards recovery. So for that one in seven of Irish alcoholics who are suffering from other psychiatric difficulties which need professional attention, uh, these kind of self-help centres might not be exactly the right, the right thing. I would I would worry a little that 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 might be the case. Yes, uh, I would worry that that um, such conditions can, especially in their milder forms, go unrecognised. But even a mild amount of uh, genuine biological depression can be a considerable cross to carry, and uh, can make it virtually impossible for somebody who is trying to deal with uh, uh, an addiction in, the, in their in their selves to uh, to recover from this. Does Sister Eileen Fahey agree? No, we, we, we wouldn't have reason to worry because of our psychiatric involvement. We work very closely with our local psychiatric hospital, which is St Luke's, St Michael's in Clonmel. And the chief psychiatrist there visits with us once a week. And all our counsellors, particularly our assessment counsellor, is trained to recognise psychiatric illness. We don't diagnose but we can recognise and even if somebody on assessment passes through the net, well they're very quickly picked up. What's demand like for your service? Oh there's we've great problems with the demand for the service because of well seeing we have just 10 beds uh, at any given time we might have two to three weeks waiting list if somebody comes along that will need detoxification, we send them into the hospital. And sometimes we might even be able to take them from the hospital. We would have to ask them to keep in touch with us maybe a few times a week until the bed is available. But that also works well because they come in with, with a, a good commitment at that stage. They really want the help. And by the time they reach us, they are well dried out. And that is an advantage. They're not, they're not over-tensed and tight about what's the mystery of the whole thing. This heavy demand prompted Ashiree to open a second house in Wexford. After treating their residents for one month, both houses put them on a two-year aftercare programme. The Tipperary Centre has already treated 640 people and claims a 65% success rate. Most residents, however, can't pay the £1,900 it costs them to stay. Industry and trade unions give money, but not enough. So Sister Eileen has devised a barter system. For those who cannot afford to pay anything, they may be on the dole and have very bad circumstances at home. A lot of them return to do a work project and that has been a tremendous success. Lots of our beautiful buildings is as a result of these people coming back and paying for their treatment. It does two things. It makes them feel good about themselves because they are paying for what they get and also we have an excellent maintenance supervisor, Dennis, who... um, rehabilitates them and maybe discovers long-lost skills in each one of them that he can encourage to put into put at work again. Rehabilitating the alcoholic is, and will remain for a long time, a major challenge in Ireland. Heavy drinking is the third greatest cause of illness here, and there's mounting evidence to show that vulnerability to alcoholism is handed down from generation to generation. Dr Matt Murphy... There's nobody who can claim immunity to alcoholism. Anyone can, can develop alcoholism if they drink enough in time. But it's undoubtedly true that some people are more at risk than others. Uh, the recent genetic studies done in the 70s, uh, mainly in the 70s in Northern Europe and in the United States, suggest that um, the offspring of 
biological uh, biological parents who are who are um, who are alcoholic have a definitely increased risk of becoming alcoholic. Um, maybe a four or five or six times uh, increased risk. John was at risk. His father was an alcoholic. Did the connection strike John when he went for treatment? No, I really didn't at the time. I didn't see any correlation. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I was brand new to this whole ball game of alcoholism and dependency and all of those things. And I never really associated it too much with uh, with my father. I'm a, I am a firm believer, however, now though that, you know, as we have genetic characteristics pass along as relate to our color of our eyes and the color of our hair and the color of our skin and our I think that those same characteristics are are passed along so my father God bless him he's been dead for years um, uh, you know uh, I didn't at the time correlate much to it because in in my father's case he died such a destructive death of a, of a man uh, literally uh, dying on Skid Row. I mean, literally, a picture in your mind, a man who is who is living in a cheap rooming house in Miami, Florida, and uh, existing from paycheck to paycheck on inexpensive wines and things of that nature. And I mean, that's how my dad died. And so, at the time, I didn't, because it was so hard for me to, in any way, see myself and my father, although I began to realize that if someone had intervened in my father's life at the age of 35 or 38 as I was, I began to realize that my father didn't get to where he was on his second drink, that he had had a lifetime of progression downhill left unchecked. And then I began to realize, and I believed very early, that if I too didn't do something, that I too might wind up like my father. This isn't obviously automatic, and you can have a, a, an alcoholic parent without becoming alcoholic, but genetic factors do undoubtedly make a contribution. They uh, are exaggerated by social factors, by, by things like the occupation you have, the habits of drinking you have, and wider factors like the cultural and social attitudes to alcohol and the availability of alcohol in a society. But to start with, I think genetic factors are important and probably will become be seen to become increasingly important. Um, the really interesting part, I think, is that some people maybe um, mark maybe maybe it may be possible in time to uh, find markers in some people which may um, identify them as being at risk. Um, and obviously, if that was the case, these people could uh, could could. Um, have special counselling with regard to the development of alcoholism, and might um, might thereby be helped. And this could be a con considerable uh, step in the prevention of alcoholism. It's a breakthrough Pat Butler would dearly like to see. His father and brothers all drank heavily, but surely after 40 years building up Hazelden, Pat has helped his family to finally break the bogey of drink. Alas, no. The next generations are coming along and catching it. I just just got word that a niece of mine, well, she wrote me and wanted a wanted a copy of something or other. Maybe that was that book. Yes, she asked me for that, and she, she just said to said, dear Uncle Pat, I'm I'm your niece Meg, grandniece Meg, and I've been in a six months. <laughs> 
so they're, they're still coming along.